Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Mudgear, makers of the best training and racing gear in OCR. Mudgear was the first compression gear built tough enough to help you conquer obstacles. When you race this season, look on the podium. You'll see top pros wearing Mudgear. Built tougher for OCR and made in the USA. Nothing else compares on the course. Check it out at mudgear.com and use my promo code DHP for a 10% discount off your order. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, here we go again. It's not been that long since you heard from me. We just finished up that amazing podcast with Steve Hammond and Mike Ferguson doing a recap on the San Jose event and the Tough Mudder TMX event. But um, it occurred to me that there needs to be some clarity on a few things that I spend a lot of time with. And seems to be a lot of confusion out there in the world. And since I am so strong-handed on the topic, I asked Zoe, Zerspreflinishnik, I didn't get it done yet before you say hello. <laughs> Zoe, Zerspreflinishnik, uh, how do I get so far off point with the way I try to pronounce your name now? And I don't even know how you started to pronounce it with a Z in the beginning, like Zer, like it doesn't even have a Z in the beginning. <laughs> You know, it's really funny that uh, at the clinic, whenever it was, last couple of weeks ago, somebody had told me that, that the favorite part of the podcast was me trying to pronounce your name. I mean, my last name, I, it is scary to look at, and that's why I find so much joy in you trying to pronounce it. <laughs> but you're like way off on this one. It doesn't even start with a Z. <laughs> well, you know what it is? I'm looking at your handle there, and it's ZS. Oh, there's so well, I do have a lot of Z's in my name. Yeah. I mean, the first, the Way first four, many. the first four letters of my last name are S Z C Z. So, Slee Sleazy, C. Anyway, all in all, I asked her to come on with me so that we could discuss this whole topic of cadence in running. It seems to fire just about everybody up. Everybody's got an opinion about why or why not someone might want to adhere to a specific cadence when they run. And the most common argument that I hear is that everybody has this little mojo that, they, that works for them and it should not be changed, shouldn't be altered. And I draw exception to this. As anybody that's been to any of my clinics knows, I'm encouraging people to try to adhere to a cadence of 180 strides per minute. And so here comes all the blowback from people about, yeah, you know, that's too fast for me, or I'm tall, or I'm short. And I get all these reasons why people feel like they should be an exception to the rule. 
And then the other thing that I hear a lot of is people coming back with these analogies of great runners who don't. And that's their defense. So-and-so runs this fast and he doesn't do it. Or that guy or this girl runs like this and they don't do it. And that's their argument. That's their defense in why they feel like they should not be taught to or asked to change the way they run. Because in their mind, if it's not broke, don't fix it or whatever that expression is. Pretty much. Yeah, so exactly right. Um, People, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I kind of know what it is. I mean, realize that my day-to-day is helping people improve the way they run and offering prescription to them in the alterations they should make in their running. And I thought about this a lot before we got on to do this. And I'll share with you that, let's just say that you walked into a boxing gym and they say, hey, Zoe, you want to box? And you say, yeah, sure, I'll try it. And then you get in the ring and you start flailing like you're trying to hit somebody with your purse (laughs) because that's just the way you fight. Should we just say, no, no, that looks good. Just leave it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel what I'm trying to say here? It's like, is there no reason for correction in sport where it comes to running, where every other sport seems to require some fashion or training and alteration in the way you move? No, no. And I mean, you make a good point. When I started seeing you and kind of getting back into running, I didn't really know that there was a magic number of strides per minute or that there was even a number of strides per minute. Like I just, I wasn't aware of that. And I think it's just trying to educate yourself and do whatever you can to learn as much as you can about the sport that you're getting into. And if you want to be more efficient at it, that you're going to, you know, learn more about it. So this beats per minute or strides per minute that you're doing, I mean, that's an important number to be efficient. Well, kind of just went, yeah. yeah. There, again, I'd like to believe there's a way to do things and many, many ways not to do things. And so, again, I, I, you're not going to escape these ridiculous analogies that I'm going to come up with. They're just coming. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, here they come. I was going to say, I, I, you get, give me a little bit more credit. I would probably box a little bit better than just <laughs> flailing my purse around. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a way to telegraph a punch where you're going to get the greatest amount of force, minimize the likelihood of jacking up your, your wrist or your shoulder, mm-hmm. and there's a way to do it. Now, someone might argue that so-and-so fighter from whatever weight class has this really bizarre way of throwing a punch, and he's very successful with it. And so he should not change it. But then again, it becomes a function of physics. At the end of the day, there's a way to do things that are anatomically correct for the body as opposed to the gravitational forces we face as we move through space. For example, people might argue, this is kind of off point, but, well, maybe not. But but the point is this, okay? People may argue that so-and-so is an amazing runner and he heel strikes. And he gets away with it. Essentially, despite the fact that he lands on his heels, he's successful. Now, you can't really take that bit of information 
and lend it to the general population and have any success. I, you know, I had a conversation. I did a podcast. and People can go back and look for it, and they'll find it to be true. I interviewed Michael Johnson, literally the fastest man in the world. He had won gold medals in everything from 100 to 400 meters and held records in those distances for close to 24 years before Hussein Bolt came along and took away his 200 and 100, I think it was, from him. Mm -hmm. But to this day, he still holds the record for the 300, which, by the way, is kind of obscure. Not too many people are concerned about the 300. It's kind of an, you know, kind of an off-breed type of an event. But at the end of the day, this is one of the fastest guys that ever lived. And if you've ever seen video of this guy run, it's like horrendous. Everything about the way he moves is opposing forward movement. But despite it all, he manages to be the fastest guy in the world. So I got the guy on a podcast, and I start breaking the guy down. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I said, you know, basically, you run like shit, you know? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, look, I mean, you're, you're running straight up and down like a board. You know, everything about the way you're moving is just contrary to your ability to move faster. He said, well, I haven't lost a race since I was six years old. <laughs> and I said, well, there's that. <laughs> so, given that he's retired now and hasn't run competitively in years, he basically went through his entire career as a runner and never lost a race. So then I asked him, I said, well, Michael, would you teach people to try and run the way you do? He said, absolutely not. He goes, I've just got this thing I do. It works for me, and it's just the way it works. And incidentally, he has these performance centers around the world where they teach sprinters how to sprint. Mm -hmm. But he would not teach anyone to run the way he did. He would follow physics. He would follow proper biomechanics, and he would try to get people to move in a logical manner at the end of the day. So if nothing else, I'd like to believe that if, if anything, I'm logical. And I like to follow what I believe to be evidence-based science. If I look at something moving and it's contrary to forward progress, then I have to start looking at why that is and what we need to correct the problem. So getting back to the cadence thing, and I've looked at this a lot. I mean, honestly, to defend my position, if that's what I'm trying to do, it sounds like it, right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that um, I've done a lot of research, and I've looked at it a bunch of, bunch of different ways. And I, I didn't just like one day pull it out of my hat that 180 strides per minute is the thing to do. There was a lot of people that came before me that suggested that that is an efficient stride frequency. But it caused me to look at it and kind of tear it apart and try to figure out why they might land on that value and whether or not it held any water. And so I came across a bunch of really compelling information that lent me to feel good about my decision to support this process. And let me just share a, a few of those things with you. It was the University of Wisconsin, I think, that was one of the most compelling arguments that I heard where they did some research on running mechanics and what they were really trying to do is get, get to the root of why most people are injured as they run. 
Because incidentally, about 75% of the running population, recreational runners, I should say, get injured. They're either mm. hurt, been hurt, or soon to be hurt. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the argument, the argument uh, seems to lend back towards the idea that the reason they get hurt is because they do too much too early or that they're not properly trained is what the argument seems to be. But that what they did is they took a bunch of these runners and they try to determine some average values. And what they find is the average recreational runner, and this has been a while ago, and I'm sure that a lot of things have changed since this came out, but they, they uh, concluded that the majority of these recreational runners land on their heels first, heel strikers, mm -hmm. and their stride frequency averages about 160-ish strides per minute. 160, 164, somewhere in that range. Now, we're talking about efficiency being at 180 strides per minute, which is significantly quicker than 164 beats per minute. Mm -hmm. So the university study came back and said that they found by increasing the frequency of stride by 5% resulted in a full 20% reduction in injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip. And so that's just in the strides per minute, but they're still doing the heel striking? Well, let me finish. Okay. So they, they found that there was a 20% reduction in injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip when people increased their stride frequency by 5%. And then they further found that by increasing your stride frequency by 10%, that the result was a full 32% reduction in injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip. So a 30, better than a 30% reduction in injuries because the stride frequency changed from about 160-ish to right at about 180 strides per minute. So at the end of the day, to kind of answer your question, is that as you start to bring your ground contact closer to your center of mass, you start to minimize the amount of breaking that you're exposing your body to. Mm -hmm. Now, this is regardless of whether you're landing on your forefoot or your heel. So I don't okay. want to confuse the two concerns. Uh, we're talking about stride frequency. We're not talking about what to hit the ground with first. Gotcha. That's a whole other argument. But the point of the matter is it becomes exceedingly more difficult to land heel first when you start to draw your heel closer to your center of mass. It just, gotcha. does, it just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But then people take this and they say, okay, he wants me to run at 180 strides per minute because the argument is it's going to reduce injury, which it does. And they take that little bit of information and they run with it and they think or have been told that they need to shorten up their stride. So the stride needs to become smaller or tighter. And so basically, like a buzzsaw, you haven't opened up your hip angle at all. You're just moving your feet quicker beneath you, mm -hmm. which is really, really hard to do, especially if you're trying to create any speed. And so they become inhibited with their stride frequency because they're trying to attain this particular number, but they're not allowing the rest of the things that need to occur to fall into place. 
So that little bit of information becomes confusing. And mm -hmm. so let's just say, for example, you got a guy that's a pretty good runner that's running at about 170 strides per minute. And now he's been taught to go to 180. And in the course of doing so, he shortens up his stride. And now he's slowing down and or potentially hurting himself because he's doing something weird. Yeah. Clearly, he's going to argue that that's not for him. And I understand that perfectly well. I would I would probably make the same argument. But again, it becomes a function of just a little bit of information and not the full picture. And I think this is where the problem seems to lie in this whole mystery of this stride frequency. They're not getting the whole picture. Now, let's kind of see if we can make this work. When you make ground contact near your center of mass, you're going to be a lot more stable. So... To better express what I'm saying here, if you were to put your foot heel first, even toe first, about a foot ahead of your center of mass, eh, just for making it a better argument, let's, let's say 16 inches ahead of your center of mass, and then try to balance on that foot by lifting your opposing foot off the ground. You can't do it. You're going to fall over, right? Mm -hmm. Try it. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming I'm trying to picture yeah. it. <laughs> well, if you were to, you know, anybody listening, just stand up and put one foot out about 16 inches away from your body and then try to lift up the trailing leg. You are going to fall over. Odds are you probably won't even attempt it. The reason is because you've just caused yourself to try to find balance on an unstable pillar. The leg being your pillar. You're incapable of making that balance point work for you. Now, obviously, if you just lifted one leg while your other leg was posted beneath you, you can balance. Some people can't even do it then. I'd be one of those people. <laughs> so the closer you are to center of mass when you make ground contact, the more stability you're going to gain on that one pillar. And in order for you to create force off the ground to push your body forward, you need to be stable. That's, that's important. Now, if your stride frequency is 170 strides per minute, the reason it's at 170 versus 180 is why? Is because your foot's on the ground longer. And the reason your foot's on the ground longer is because your body needs to approach the foot that's made contact with the earth. And incidentally, the only reason you can even Balance on that foot while it's ahead of your body the way it is on ground contact is because you have momentum. So you momentarily become unstable as you approach that foot. And then eventually you get the foot beneath you and then now able to create force to push yourself forward. Have I lost you yet? Uh, I think I'm still falling along. All right. So just to be clear, you get a chance to land on an unstable pillar momentarily because you have momentum. You're driving yourself forward over top of this leg momentarily, and it's not stable. And by the way, this is why people get injured. For the majority of the injuries that occur, it's because when you're unstable, your hip falls apart, your knee falls in. There's so many various things that can happen when you're on that unstable pillar that results in some fashion of injury. And then it becomes a function of strength to weight ratio. So you'll find that some people get away with more than others 
mm-hmm. you land on an unstable pillar, but you're very, very strong, have got good bone density, and you're very light relative to your strength, you get away with it. And then what you're doing is you're pawing at the ground to pull your body forward through space, which is far and away more inefficient than it would be to start to get a bit of a forward lean and push your body forward through space. And Mm -hmm. I've used the analogy many times before, and I'll do it again. Think in terms of being on a skateboard, where the foot post on the skateboard is your stable pillar. And then you decide you want to power forward that swing leg, the one that's going to slap the ground and push you forward. You draw your knee up. You're going to make contact with that foot on the ground, consistent with where the other foot is on the board laterally so that you can create stability and you're going to drive your hip behind you. You're going to get that hip extension and the time that your foot is on the ground is going to be from the initial ground contact by your center of mass as you push behind you. So you're pushing your body forward through space opposed to trying to reach out and pull your body to your foot. I love that example. I always think of that when I'm running. (laughs) Well, now think about it. So you're stable momentarily. You're going to get good hip extension. The hip extension is going to be a product of good stability off the ground. And that's going to give you that extension, which is going to beget flexion. You get the hip extended, and then you'll end up having the knee reciprocally draw forward and get in position to do the, the action again and again and again where if you land ahead of your center of mass, you're collapsing as you start to approach that foot. You have to recover from that collapse and that collision and then try to generate force to move yourself forward again. And then the other consideration is that because you reach ahead of your body, you need to create hang time in order to reach out and do it again. So you have vertical oscillation. Your body's going to go up in the air. And the further up you go, detracts away from the time it takes for you to move forward. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So vertical oscillation is a problem that results from overstriding. Overstriding is a timing problem. If you're landing ahead of your center of mass, your foot's going to be on the ground too long. And there lies the rub. You're ending up with a stride frequency that is slower than 180 strides per minute. Okay. I've had people come back and say, I'm at 178 strides per minute. That works for me. Well, yeah, if that works for you, a little bit tighter would work even better. Mm -hmm. So if 180 is going to put you closest to your body as possible, that's going to cause you to be more stable than you would be any other way. Now, do you ever suggest ever going over 180? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) I'm really so glad you asked that. <laughs> now, I just got off the phone with a client that I'm doing virtual gait analysis with. Mm-hmm. And she asked me the same question. I get it asked a lot. Because, again, that little bit of information is what's getting people in trouble. They assume that it's unreasonable to request that you just stay at that frequency. And I think that there's a time for it and there's a time that you need to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. So I refer to 180 strides per minute as home. That's that's where you're safe. That's where things are going to go best for the most part. 
And then there comes a time when you should gain some allowances to increase your stride frequency even greater. A good example of this would be on a downhill run. Okay. If you have the balance and the coordination and the stability and strength to increase your frequency even greater on a downhill, well, guess what? Now you've got inertia working in your favor. You've got gravity at your back. You're not, no longer in this opposition with gravity or inertia. So, yeah, it's not going to cost you more. You're just basically getting out of the way of yourself to motor down the hill with as less stress as possible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. I had a guy, as a matter of fact, a while back say, look, my cadence on a, on a downhill is about 220. Is that okay? I said, as long as you don't fall on your face. <laughs> right? Because he's just basically getting his feet beneath him as closely as possible without without colliding, without crashing. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other end of it is people want to make this argument about short distance running. Now, if you're going to run a 400 or a 200 or even a 100 or a 40, mm -hmm. these are not circumstances where endurance or generation of lactate is a problem. You're yeah. basically going for it and trying to go as fast as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And there, it's a short term. So if you're going to run a 40 or 100 or 200, your stride frequency is going to be off the hook. Yeah. But I would suggest to you that the first thing that needs to happen before you start to generate greater leg turnover is that you maximize the potential in your stride length relative to a frequency of 180 strides per minute. So basically, you want to be flying. You want to be off the ground as much as possible. Yeah. But generating a stride frequency of 190 to 200 some odd strides per minute is exhausting. It's going to generate a ton of lactic acid. And it's just a matter of how long it takes before the finish line shows up or you blow up. Yeah. But if you're going to run a distance of say, for example, a mile, a 5K, yeah. 10K, half marathon, marathon, you're far and away better suited to stay at a frequency that's going to be efficient and most economical. And that turns out to be 180 strides per minute. Yeah. I'll give you another example that I thought was pretty interesting. There was a research study done, and I don't recall where it was done or who did it, but it was, it was exhibited to me at one time. They took a room full of guys and they braced their knees. So they were incapable of flexing their knees. Mm -hmm. and the only instructions they offered them was, we want you to hop up and down for five minutes. The guys that hopped up and down at a slower frequency failed. The guys that hopped up and down at a greater frequency failed. It turned out, without any instruction, without any guiding or training, the guys that were able to conduct themselves for five minutes were at a frequency of hop that was about 180 strides per minute. So the experiment was to find out what efficiency would look like. Mm -hmm. And that's what ended up happening. About 180 steps per minute was the, was the cadence that they were successful with. Opposing gravity is a problem. And obviously, you're going to be off the ground more frequently if your stride frequency is greater, but then the cost starts getting in the way. If you're slower, 
the call starts getting in the way. So there just happens to be this sweet spot that just turns out to be about 180 strides per minute. Oh, that makes sense. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> well, when you lay it out like that, it makes sense. Well, just think about it, right? It's like if, if you turn your legs over too fast, it's untenable. It's going to get, it's going to get in your way. It's going to shut you down. Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. And if you're on the ground too long, it's a function of you being ahead of yourself too far. And the end product is you're not, you're not stable and you, you exhibit vertical oscillation. So a lot of the energy that you're putting into the work is about bounding upward and down. Mm-hmm. By the way, they did a thing where they measured the vertical oscillation of Ryan Hall, who was a premier marathoner. And this was several years ago, and I've, I've since seen that he has corrected the problem to, to a great degree. But they found out that his vertical oscillation how much travel he had going up relative to most elite Kenyan or Ethiopian runners, he had about a 4.6 inch vertical hop. So now that means if he goes up 4.6, he's got to come back down 4.6. Uh-huh. So basically nine inches of vertical travel to each stride. They factored this out in a marathon and they figured that relative to what is necessary, he was hopping about three and some odd miles. Oh, okay. He gave way 3.2 miles. I think it was 3.2, 3.4, something like that, of vertical distance to his forward progress. So in other words, if he eliminated some of that vertical hop and translated that into his forward progress, just think how much further along he would have been relative to his finish time. Yeah, very true. And the difference is his ground contact needed to be near. And the difference is in order to get his ground contact more near, his stride frequency would have to improve. Actually, what they talked about was what he loses in a marathon is consistent with what it takes to run to the top of the Empire State Building and back down. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're going to run a marathon, Zoe, and I'm going to start running across the ground. But before you go, you got to run to the top of the Empire State Building and back down again. Yeah, yeah, about that. <laughs> you probably beat me anyway. <laughs> I don't know. In my current state, we might be even. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we even said this at, at TMX. You're like, how about you go t- run around? I'm like, no, I'm the injured one. How about you go push me around? <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. I got to ask you now, I've not prompted you other than the fact that I was feeling very strongly about wanting to get this type of information out. Mm-hmm. Do you think I've left people wanting in this conversation? I mean, I think you explained it pretty well. I, coming into this, I, like I kind of said, I didn't really have too much experience with cadence rhythm or what the right one should be or really that there is such thing as a cadence rhythm like a couple years ago. So it all makes sense to me that 180 should be the sweet spot. And when I've been kind of testing it out, that has been the sweet spot for me. So, I mean, it makes sense to me. Listen, I just got off the phone a while ago, 
with one of my clients, new client, contacted me because she's been injured. Mm-hmm. And injured as a result of her running. And I'm not going to use her name. But I'll tell you that she just did the uh, Bone Frog event in Talladega this past weekend. I got a hold of her a week before that event. She was injured. She was having problems with her, her TFL and her IT band. Mm-hmm. To the point where she was incapable of running. I got her moving again. And the very first thing I had her do was adhere to a frequency of 180 strides per minute and caused her to draw her contact. I didn't say tighten her stride. I said draw her contact closer to her center of mass by adhering to the stride frequency. Spoke to her on the phone just a few minutes ago. She told me she actually went off course and ended up running three miles further than the course had initially laid out for so she was supposed to run six. She ended up running nine. And she well, that's said, a, "That's just poor on their part for not having it marked properly." Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a whole other argument. But the point of the matter was, she told me that not only was she capable of running the nine miles, but she was able to run pain free, and it was the best run she's had that she's ever experienced. And essentially, what we did is cause her not to be loping collapsing and insulting her IT band every time she made contact with the ground. Mm -hmm. And the end result was she was able to run much more efficiently pain-free. Now, if I don't ever have anything other than that conversation with people after I've offered them some help, that'll be plenty for me. Yeah. Right. Right. And I mean, I can relate to a certain way. It's, uh, I tried running the other day and I just, I didn't have my phone or anything with me. So I had none, I didn't have the metronome or anything. I just kind of went out and I just, it just, it didn't feel right. And my hip hurt so bad after, I don't know, it was a really, really short, 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 short distance. And it's just because I, it was off. Like I just, I'm, I need to have that tune in my head cause I'm not, I'm not there yet. And that just helps me so much with concentrating on where my feet are landing. Because if I'm overstriding or if, I'm putting that unnecessary weight or force into my hip. Like I feel it. Yep. I'll bet you a hundred bucks standing bet. <laughs> I could take you out on the road and at your side, guide you through a run and you'll come out of it and you won't hurt. Now, how long are we talking? <laughs> Let's just, for the sake of, uh, you know, just to be safe and not to be ignorant about it. If I just took you around the block, did a mile, I'll bet you I can get you to run a mile pain-free. Uh, and, I'd say maybe. I might be at that point now. No, you're not. No. Nah. I'll get you at that point because at the end of the day, when you land properly you're not going to be throwing the load into the area that's been injured. Yeah. You're strong enough if you bear the load equally through through your system. I mean, it's, it's from the ground to core. Mm-hmm. If you do the right things with the way you land, you're going to be stable every time you hit the ground, and that stability is going to save you. Yeah. And you need to own that, and that needs to be part of you. And once that becomes part of you, you're not going to hurt yourself anymore. Or certainly yeah. not going to hurt yourself as often, for sure. Yeah. 
again, not to get too far off point and not to kick this dog further down the road than we already have, I want to just put it out there and say this. Everything that I do is evidence-based. I don't take an opinion and just run with it. I don't read an article and build my case around the article I read. I have to feel it, touch it, experience it, and prove it. Not just once, but time and time and time again before it becomes part of my process. I've spent the past 30 years in this business, 20 some odd years doing clinical evaluations on athletes, and a good solid 10 years doing gait evaluation and guiding runners to run more efficiently. It's not always been perfect by any stretch. I mean, like life, we, we learn as we go. But I've influenced so many people at this point in time, so many people I've touched. And through all this research, through all this evidence that I've gathered from the work I've done, I come to a point where I'm more than confident, I'm absolutely convicted that if you do nothing other than try to work out appropriate stride frequency, it's going to pay huge dividends in the way you move. By the way, the other thing that, since I, I'm almost trying to conclude this business and there's a few other things that I haven't talked about that I think I need to touch on. Okay. If you use a metronome, almost at any rate, it almost doesn't matter at what rate that you adhere to. You're going to cause what's called bilateral equivalence. You're going to start entraining your contact to be equal. That means one foot is not leading the other. By just randomly running down the road, odds are you're preferentially loading one leg versus the other. And by doing that, your tendency is to cause imbalance. And the likelihood of injury on one of those two limbs is greater, as opposed to sharing the load equally between those two legs. So by adhering to a frequency of 180 strides per minute and by managing the work equally between both legs, you're way, way ahead of the game. Yeah, I was like, I, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, I agree to that. Well, it's like you got, you got two guys and you got a hole to dig. And one guy's sitting on the, on, the, on the bench and you're working your butt off with that shovel, right? Mm-hmm. If the guy gets in the hole with you and they both dig, I told you these analogies are just not going to quit, right? I know. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you want both guys working the shovel, man. You don't want to do, you don't want to watch the one guy and expect the job to get done. It's just not going to happen. All right. So enough about that. Uh, did I make it any better? Did I make it any worse? No, I think, I think uh, you touched some really good points and I agree fully. Like I said, I, I went out. And I tried to run without anything, and I, I needed that metronome because it does help with how my feet are landing. And I tend to overcompensate a little bit if I'm not really paying attention. So it helps me. So Let me close by just offering this one analogy that might, might set a lot of people's minds at ease. Yes, we get another one. <laughs> Try to imagine that you've been working really hard to adopt as much speed as possible without violating the stride frequency of 180 strides. Then you're rolling, let's just say for example, you managed to pull off, just hypothetically, you managed to pull off a six minute pace comfortably 
at 180 strides per minute. Your competition comes up on your shoulder and they're grinding it out. Their legs are turn over, turning over much faster than yours because they're trying to catch you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Why not then exhaust yourself a little bit by pushing your cadence up even a little faster? So now you're pressing them. And then he's already been winding the yo-yo like crazy to try to catch you. Now you're forcing him to try to dig a little deeper. And then when he digs a little deeper, maybe you, you, you refrain a little bit. You fall back into 180 strides and maintain that nice pace again. And then you progressively start breaking him down by creating these little surges where you increase your frequency a little bit here and there just to bust him down. And then comfortably just pull away because your cost factor at your stride frequency is so much less than his. So that's another way to use an effective stride mastery in order to break down competition. So at home you're safe. Every now and then you step out of the box, you put the hammer down a little bit, put pressure on the competition, go back home, lay there for a little bit, and then pull the ugly stick out every now and then to break them down once again. I'm not suggesting that there's never a time to get outside of that stride frequency, Mm -hmm. but I am definitely suggesting that the mastery of that stride frequency, to get the most distance out of your stride, to get the most speed out of that efficient stride frequency, should be the paramount concern. All the magical stuff that happens outside of that is extra. Mm -hmm. On that note, we are going to be in Chicago to do a clinic in May. We're going to do another one here at the Secret Lab in June. We're going to do another one in Killington in July. We're going to do another one in Atlanta, Georgia in November. And we're going to do one more in Austin, Texas in December. And that's it for the year. You're going to be a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they call me because I'm fixing people. People are getting better. People getting smarter. People racing better. And, you know, as I suggested many, many times, you can't win if you run like shit. I was just going to say, what, what, what's that thing that you say now? And there we are. <laughs> have you seen the shirts showing up? I, I have. I've seen a couple of posts of people wearing the shirts now. And it says that on the back, right? Yeah. If yeah. I give you one of those shirts, will you wear it? Maybe. I ain't going to give it to you unless you wear it. <laughs> I, have a, I will only wear it when I'm running with you. Oof. What's the sense? I already know that. You know, because I, I, the only time I run is when I'm with you. <laughs> now, you know, that's not a compelling enough argument for me. You need to wear it out in the population. You need to represent. If you're not going to represent now and then, you know, that's just like wasted marketing. No, I know. I would proudly represent that shirt. I need better than a probably. I, I said need... I would proudly represent oh, proudly. that shirt. Okay. All, right, yeah. All right, then you're an owner. <laughs> Next time I see you, I'm going to put one on you. Yes. You're going to love it, too. They're comfortable. They're nice. Thank you, Zoe, once again yep. for uh, indulging me, allowing me to to rant and vent and being there patiently supporting my effort. Heck, yeah. And I learned something new today, so there we go. Did you? Yeah. Every time I'm on these conversations with you, I just kind of I sit here and I just learn. It's almost like I'm listening to the podcast even though i'm on it 
cool. Well, you know, yeah. if, if I can do nothing else, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to do that. Yeah. All right. Enjoy your weekend. Happy Easter. Yeah. Happy Easter to you as well. All right. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.